The effects of climate change are hitting too close to home for residents of the Maldives. Alarming predictions by the United Nations Climate Panel of a global sea level rise are becoming a stark reality for some of the millions who inhabit the 1200 islands. The Maldives is a tropical nation off the coast of India. Its islands are considered among the most vulnerable places on Earth to shifting sea levels and storms. But what if you could influence ocean currents to build new islands instead of destroy? It could be possible through a concept known as self-assembly, where separate components can autonomously come together to form structures. And that sounds really science fiction, but that is like the fundamental motif of how planets are formed. That's how like everything in biology works, but it just doesn't happen at the human scale. So we're trying to figure out, can we make that happen? Self-assembly could be a boon for manufacturing in extreme and resource-poor environments, like space. And at a lab at MIT, scientists are experimenting with ways self-assembly can be used to develop materials capable of spontaneously changing shape or adapting to temperatures, just like human skin. From the Wall Street Journal, this is the future of everything. I'm Anthony Green. Hi, I'm Katie Binley, and I cover personal tech for The Wall Street Journal. I'm speaking with Skylar Tibbetts. He's the co-founder of the Self-Assembly Lab at MIT. I met up with him at a tech conference in Vancouver. There, he gave a talk on how self-assembly could be used to build, among many things, islands in the Maldives. It's a process that goes against how we traditionally think about the way things are created. So manufacturing and construction are top-down. Like, we come, with a, come up with an idea, and then we send it to a machine or people to build it. But everything in biology or chemistry happens from the bottom up. So design and functionality build themselves through the interaction of components. And so our lab is trying to figure out, can we utilize self-assembly at the human scale for larger systems? In manufacturing, you think about, like, um, you often see them shaking a bunch of parts and they're trying to then sift out impurities. Or you go to the bank and there's, like, coin sorters. Those are usually, you take a bunch of parts, you give them some energy, like, shake them or spin them or whatever, and they'll separate. And we basically want to do the opposite. Give them some energy, shake them, vibrate them, and have them come together and build a structure. And basically, there's three ingredients of why this works. You need some parts, and that has to do with the geometry, like what shape are they? They need some interaction, and you can use magnets, Velcro, stickiness, adhesive, surface tension, like anything to get them to stick in the right place, but you want the patterned attraction, like the right ones will connect to the other right ones, and then you need energy. Shaking, wind, waves, vibration, tumbling, you need some type of agitation, and then things can come together. And we've done that with a cell phone, for example, like take all the components of a cell phone, put them in a tumbler, and then they come together, and then you have a fully functioning cell phone. And so we were trying to demonstrate that perhaps computer electronics, all the digital tools that we have, the physical kind of hardware, could be manufactured in this way. You have a bunch of components, you want them to come together and in order to build like precise things. Because there's a lot of automation that goes into that in terms of electronic circuit boards, but there's still a lot of manual placement of those, combining those components. So we could potentially use this as a manufacturing process. Okay, and the benefits to it versus, say, a person putting it together. Yeah, sure. So, like, typical construction and assembly is um, kind of happens in a linear manner. Like, in, in order to get faster, you either need more people or you need a more efficient robot, for example. 
And in order to get more precise things, we typically either need more skilled labor, which often costs more money, or you need better and better, super highly precise robots that are more expensive and harder to make, especially when you need to make like crazy intricate things. Mm-hmm. So there's a question about like, how do we build things when you don't necessarily have access to skilled labor or crazy, super powerful, precise machines? Like, is, is the future of manufacturing and construction really going to be like total automation? Or are there other scenarios where we can create systems or environments where things build themselves. So a a good example in my mind is like when you want to build something and it's an extreme environment, think outer space, think underwater, think um, dangerous places, you know, places where it's like war zones or extreme like weather incidents or places where it's hard to build. Typical construction doesn't typically work. It's hard for astronauts to build. So if we can find a way to have a bunch of parts and you just let them go and they assemble themselves, that's like the dream. And that sounds really science fiction, but that is like the fundamental motif of how planets are formed. That's how humans are formed. That's how like everything in biology works, but it just doesn't happen at the human scale. So we're trying to figure out, can we, can we make that happen? And so we have a lot of projects that have done that from like weather balloons that assemble to cell phones to furniture. Um, And the most recent one is looking at how sand can self-organize to make structures. So that was going to bring me to some, the next thing I was going to ask you, (laughs) you were tasked with making a dent in a fairly large problem, which is that the Maldives are seeming to sink. Um, And uh, I was hoping you could just kind of give a quick overview of the problem itself and then take us through some of the solutions that are being proposed or already implemented by basically people other than yourself and sort of what you make of some of the existing, um, I guess, proposed solutions out there. Yeah. Well, and before that, like we've thought a lot about the self-organization and self-assembly and there's kind of a difference between those self-assemblies usually when there's a final output, like a product, an object. And self-organization is thought of as things that can grow and dissolve and change like population movement or like flocks of birds, schools of fish, traffic jams. These are usually self-organization. We think about those a lot. And I've often been thinking about like, how do we use all the energy in the environment, like earthquakes, tsunamis, tornadoes, like massive energy and try to build with that because that is like a crazy source of energy that we could use. And so that has just like been in the back of our minds for a long time. And then we, had this opportunity, a group from the Maldives approached us. Um, They saw some of our work and thought maybe there's interesting things we could do in the Maldives. Um, And they, it's it's a group that is looking at um, kind of what's the future of tourism. And it's probably not going to be just like ignoring climate change and running away from it or just, you know, trying to build more shopping malls or, you know, harming the environment. What if we could take it on and, and both invest in research as well as creative new interesting exciting things and so that was like kind of the the nexus of it and that's where we started to think about using wave energy which is this like amazingly powerful source of energy in the natural environment and sand accumulates naturally in sandbars all over the place but you just don't know when and why and so we thought about tapping into it the main problem that they're addressing is sea level rise and storm inundation so basically Maldives, like any island nation or any coastal region, is going to be affected by those two things. So the typical solutions are either ignore it. Ignoring it is pretty bad. 
um, because you know more than 40% of the world's population is in coastal areas. So this is a serious problem that is affecting a lot of people. The second one is uh, the most common, which is basically build fixed infrastructure, like walls, jetties, barrier islands. Um, you've seen these like concrete tetrapods sometimes. Like they, basically the tendency is to build big, massive things, levees, dams to stop the force of nature. And um, all our, of which have the potential to fail at various exactly. points. Exactly. <laughs> like nature is going to win. No matter what we build that's static, nature is going to basically beat it up and overcome it, break it down. And the bigger problem in my mind is that it's a static solution for a super dynamic problem. And so, like, let's say you build a wall, the storm comes, like, on the East Coast, for example, it's, you have nor'easters and you have hurricane season come from the South. You have totally different directions of storms coming. You've built a single solution that's not addressing either one of those in a, in a clear way. So we need adaptation. And the other one is dredging. So suck a bunch of sand up from the deep ocean, pump it back onto the beach. How's that been working so far? I mean, you'll see that in every beach community. They're basically pumping sand year after year in order to just like survive. To, to maintain status quo is like continually pump sand. It's super harmful for the environment. It's super energy intensive. And it's not doing anything for the future. It's actually just like barely surviving. But you can also use um, dredging to make new islands, that, which is what they're doing in the Maldives and many other places. Um, and that's harmful. It's not great. It's man-made islands that don't really want to be there. It's bad for the marine environment, et cetera. So anyway, that's the typical solutions, dredge or build barriers. And so what we're trying to do is, let's say, take the forces of the wave and use it in a constructive way. Like nature is always going to be blasting these islands with lots and lots of force of the waves. Instead of destroying the island, can we promote the accumulation of sand in strategic locations? And the way that we think we can do that is by submerging almost like artificial reef structures that can adapt. So if there's a storm coming, they can orient themselves to a certain direction the wave flows over it and then it promotes the accumulation of sand. How do they know where to go? Yeah, so right now we're building, in the lab, we're building static geometries we place underwater with waves. And we just try to understand what's the relationship of the geometry to the force of the wave and what does that do? So like we place an object, pump some waves, like just in a wave tank, and then see what the sand does. And we did that for like hundreds of different objects, trying to understand why the sand goes one way or another way. And in February, we went to the Maldives and did one first field experiment with the geometry that worked very, very well in our tank. We put that in the Maldives to study how would it work in the real environment with all the dynamics and complexities of tides and storms and seasons and all that stuff. What does the geometry look like? It's like a ramp, as simple as a ramp, and it's sticking out a little bit from, from the top of the water. Um, so the way that it works is like the water flows over it, almost like a rock in a river. It flows over the top, and that causes this churning effect on the back, like a waterfall that then mixes up the sand. It gets the sand into the water, because otherwise the sand is just at the bottom. So it creates a, a really good turbulence of sand and water, and then it starts to flow and pile up. And you're basically trying to create this piling of sand that happens beyond the ramp. So the ramp is almost like a reef. So normally you'll have like the deep ocean, the waves come in, and then as it hits the reef, it basically causes this sediment transport. The, the wave is then starting to accumulate the sand. So the same thing kind of happens. It flows over this 
ramp causes the mixing and then it starts to accumulate sand over and over and over again. And you can, you can determine where the sand is going to go. Yeah, exactly. Based on the ramp. Based on where the ramp is. Okay. And so the first one we built was just literally large bladders, canvas bladders that we made just like simple, cheap biodegradable material. We put sand in it to make a static, big, heavy object. And that's the ramp, Mm -hmm. but it doesn't adapt, which is what we want it to do. So the next field experiment We want to make more submersible bladders. Like they're hollow. We can fill them with water. They sink. They're static. But then we can pump the air in and they float like a submarine. And that would allow us to then move them. So if if you're gathering data, you can say like there's a storm coming from this direction. Orient it towards this location. And you're going to then be able to take advantage of that force and that orientation. Or if the season shifts, because there's two predominant seasons, then you can switch the orientation in the season. So you can know that you're always taking advantage of the forces instead of just being in the wrong place at the wrong time. How big are these things? Um, meters by meters by meters. The ones we're trying are like roughly three meters in any direction. Um, but that's still very small. How many of them do you need to Yeah, so make we want to build larger ones, um, but we also want to build many of them. So you'd have like a fleet. So for example, if you have an island or if you, you know, it's a, a beach community or something, maybe you have 10 of these or you, sell, you have a dozen of these and you can put them out strategically, um, basically like an artificial reef that's out there. And then that promotes the accumulation of sand wherever you need, but you can move them. And then you can dock them like a boat because they just float. So they don't always have to be there. And so, I mean, earlier you were saying how the, you know, the current man-made islands, mm-hmm. like they don't always go in the right locations. Yeah. Like what is it about your method that yeah. picks better locations? What we're trying to do is um, make it so that the sand is accumulating naturally because of the force of the waves and the topography of the landscape so that it wants to be there. Like if you're dredging, you can just dump the sand wherever you want. And that may not work with the tides and the direction of the storms and the direction of the coral. It's just going to be wherever you dumped it. And so eventually it wants to wash away because it may not have wanted to be there. So by placing these um, ramp geometries, the sand is going to accumulate because of the orientation of the storms and because of the orientation of the water. So the sand is going to grow because of the natural forces of where it needs to be and wants to be. It's just more like we're trying to accelerate it. You're giving it a nudge. Yeah, or almost like gardening with it. Like we can't control everything. There's certain forces like in the gardening analogy like sun and water. You can control a little bit, but you need to let the system grow on its own. One of the things I was kind of struck by when you were talking is that the work has this very uh, sort of natural, organic feel to it. Like mm-hmm. you're, you're, you know, you're mimicking nature in a way. At the same time, you're also like adding this element to the ocean that wouldn't otherwise be there, and that just makes me think of the potential for unintended consequences. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I wonder, um, is that something that like your team sits around and thinks about and tries to anticipate? And um, are there are there examples of things that you thought of that like, hey, this is something this could be a byproduct of mm. what we're doing and how do we work around that well first i'd also clarify that we try not to mimic it but collaborate with nature is the way we think about it like the natural processes of self-assembly or self-organization or crystallization or like wave and sediment transport so i think that may be a a distinction Um, but certainly we're interested to understand what what are the consequences of this positive or negative and so what we're doing right now is trying to study it for at least the next year 
and understand what happens with sediment transport and then what happens with the environment around it. You know, how does this affect the coral or how does this affect like the marine environment as you accumulate sand? But you do need to understand if you escalate the amount of sand accumulation in a region, like what does that do? So that's why we're trying to understand this over the next year. It's a, it's kind of a very slow process in a way, like we can try something and then we have to watch it for at least a year because they have these two seasons and anything you do, you want to be able to test in both seasons. We're very conscious of trying not to do any harm, but make sure that we can protect the environment or grow the environment that's already there. So another thing we're thinking about is like introduce vegetation, which could be really helpful for the environment and create new ecosystems. Um, also that these bladders, things can grow on them. So, you know, marine life and coral and other things can grow on those structures, which would be useful. So then you kind of, even though it's an artificial reef, it could turn into like a real reef on an artificial reef. I'm assuming you knew that when you built them or that's something you guys learned Uh, as they were? No, that's something that we learned and kind of discovered is that anything you put in the ocean basically is going to get taken over. And you could think of that as a positive thing. You know, coral is going to grow on it. Marine life is going to grow on top of it algae is going to grow and you can just allow that to happen even if you're still going to move them. And I mean, are you able to, I don't know, like plan for unexpected things in the lab or do you feel like being out there is the only way that you're going to be able to see, you know, what the byproducts we of this might be? We can plan for some things. Like for example, we can um, change the wave pattern to uh, relate to one season or another or to change like tide perhaps or we can move the orientation of it as like the weather shifts. We could try it in a different orientation. But realistically, we can't get anywhere close to the complexity of the real environment. So there's almost nothing that compares to just trying it there. And we have these amazing collaborators that we can literally do that. And we've um, teamed up with the Ministry of the Environment there in the Maldives, and they're super supportive to try to find like any way forward. How long have you been working on this total? A uh, little less than a year, so it's pretty new. Uh, February is when we did the first install, and then we've been studying it in the lab for whatever that is, like nine months or something. So it's all like fairly new. We, we've been doing the self-assembly research for nearly a decade now, so a lot of different research in the lab. This is the first time we translated it to the Maldives and the ocean application. And what kind of technology do you use in the lab in order to develop something like this? We have a lot of machines, printers, industrial knitting machines, and injection molding, milling, lamination. We have a lot of like six-axis robots and big tanks of water and fans and tumblers for the self-assembly work. There's there's a lot of um, different types of machines, either making things or activating things or uh, tumbling, shaking things. So that's like the kind of equipment in the lab that we study. And so all these are different environments, underwater, in fans, tumblers, spinners, shakers. What are the other applications of self-assembly stuff that people wouldn't think of that they might see in like their everyday lives anytime soon? We were really just like pushing to see what was possible. The cell phone was one of the first demonstrators of, okay, this could be used for manufacturing. The weather balloons was maybe this could be used for construction in extreme environments. But the Maldives is the first where it's, this is a real application with a real need. But a lot of the other work that I was talking about on the material side, so we work on what we call programmable materials, basically making materials that we can program to change shape, change act, uh, change behavior, activate, sense, react, whatever. 
those have very, very near-term applications. Like um, basically any industry you can think of, automotive, aviation, apparel, they're all trying to make smarter things, smarter clothes, smarter shoes, smarter buildings. Um, and we're trying to demonstrate that that can happen through simple materials. So basically clothing that can adapt to become breathable or change to like control body temperature or insulation values or moisture content or um, change aerodynamics on a car that can morph to increase performance or you know, any application is looking for smarter materials. And we find ways to easily produce those out of everyday materials. So they're not like some super high tech thing. It's like textiles, wood, uh, plastics, foams, metals, composites, and we can make them sense and react, et cetera. So the, all of those are very near term. Whereas the self-assembly work was very like far futures and now the Maldives kind of brought it back into focus. Speaking of far future, do you have like a dream project that in your head of the, what you would want to work on after this? <laughs> I mean, the Maldives is pretty dreamlike. It's a really amazing place. It's hard to say if there's like, I guess what I'm most excited about is these two ends of the spectrum um, that I think about the radical and the relevant. So the, like personally, the things that make me excited, what's the most radical thing that we could do on any given day? And if you, you know, look at our website or see some of the videos or research that we're doing, a lot of it is like crazy, seems impossible. Like, how does that work? Why is that thing moving? Like super sci-fi looking. And so we're always trying to push that. Like, what is the most amazing, surprising, radical thing we could do at any given day just to keep it interesting and like push the boundaries of what seems possible. Like the other is like, what is the most relevant thing that we could do at any given moment? Like on a daily basis, what could you do that would be the most important thing to do at that time or have the most impact? And those are not like always related. Sometimes you do very important things that are very boring. Yeah. So we have projects at both ends of the spectrum. I think the Maldives is one that is like, the nexus of both. It's super important. It's a really major problem right now. It's super relevant. And if you can make that happen, if you can grow an island naturally, that's just crazy. It doesn't seem possible, and you can find a way to tap in to make it possible. The Future of Everything is a production of The Wall Street Journal. This episode was produced with help from Katie Bindley and Becca Weinman. Thanks for listening. I'm Anthony Green. <laughs>